0: Last week, Barry Cameron was here, and I thought Barry did a phenomenal job of calling for us, now here's where I'm going, to be a part of the extreme minority. I want to have you, I want me, I want Pam and I to be a part of the extreme minority. Now what is the extreme minority? Uh, number one, if you and I have a very real relationship with Jesus Christ, if we really are his, if we know him, and and we're living an intimate life with him, then the Bible says that our sins are forgiven by virtue of his blood and what he's done. And we are cleansed, and we are free. And by the way, interestingly, we would say we're free from our sins. The old King James, do you remember what it called it? Our debts. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and and so we were indebted to God, but that debt has been forgiven, and you're debt-free in that area of your life with God. That makes you a part of a very, very extreme minority group, people who really are walking with the Lord know the Lord. The second one, if you add this to it, it becomes even more of a minority. Why? What if we were debt-free, period? We had no financial debt whatsoever, And by the way, if that happened, Barry pointed out, you would be living the life you always have wanted to live. Why? Because that's the life God wants you to live. You would be living the life that is meant for the elect. And you and I, by the way, need to live that life. Now, today, if you say, that's not me, if you and I, Pam and I are not there yet, but if you would join Pam and I in making a commitment to be truly debt-free and start moving in that direction, you would immediately be a part of that extreme minority. Now, uh, last week, we offered anybody in our church who wanted to for free, Barry's book, The ABCs of Financial Freedom. And guess what? Last week, we ran out. So I know there's some of you going, I didn't get a copy. Well, we got more out there. Uh, We got more out there for you. You know, we purchased them. We, uh, you know, he, he, and all the proceeds from this go to help people in need. And so we are glad to do that. But we, if you would commit to read this, then I want to encourage you to go out there and grab this. Now, I, um, I'm going to ask you to pray for me. Uh, what we're going to do today is get into the meat of the word. When I have a lot of people always come up saying, Chuck, I, I just really want the meat. Well, guess what? Today we're about to get into the meat. We really are. Now, the, the reason I want you to pray for me is last Tuesday, I gathered a team of people together and I shared the message with them. And when I was done, they looked at me and said, I don't have a clue what you said. And, and by the way, I, I, that, it's on me. I need to be able to share with you. But I would tell you this, what I'm about to get into today is not even Bible college material. This is graduate level. This, and when you begin to understand what we're getting into, it's not only about the subject we're on. It gives you an understanding of something very complex, but very wonderful. that comes straight out of scripture. So we are going to get into the meat, but I mean this. I'm going to ask you just to take a moment. I'm going to be silent. I'm going to ask you to do this. Would you pray for me that God would give me the words to share with you I'm, during that silence, going to pray for you that you have a mind and a heart to understand. I'm going to ask you to take good notes. I'm going to ask you to really think. And we're going to ask God to just enlighten us to the depths of Scripture today. So uh, let's do that together. I'll just take a second. Please pray for me, and then I'll pray for you. Father, I mean, I mean it when I say I ask for your help. I love what your word teaches. I love the power of what we're about to look at. I know that when we understand it, it causes us to be embraced and close to you more than ever. So help us know today that what we're about to look at really does matter. But it matters more than what the, just the surface thought of the moment. The surface is beautiful, but when we go to the depths of what it means, then it becomes awesome. And I pray right now we would want to do that. We'd open to that. I pray that I could share it in a way that would make sense. I pray our our people would grab it. Our family would grab it here. And so, God, we pray for your anointing now, your spirit to move now, and give us understanding of your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to tell you something today. I want to make three promises to you that come straight from Scripture. This isn't my promise. It's God's promise to you. If you and I understand what we're about to talk about and act on it, and act on it. That three things will be true. Now here's what they are. Number one, you'll be aligned with God. You'll be aligned with the Father. And by that, why, why is that important? Because then He'll direct you. You know when your car's out of alignment, it's tough to move. When you and I are aligned with God, then we're going to move in the direction and live the life. And, and have God's will enacted upon us. And we're going to be aligned with what He wants for us in every area of our life. As we act on this. And, and, it, and it pervades every area of our life. So number one, you'll be aligned with God. Number two, you'll be in tune with God. Now, why is that important? Well, that means you're going to start to hear God's voice. This is a part of the power of the whisper. God speaks in a still, small voice, in a gentle whisper, and you and I will become in tune with him, and we'll begin to hear from him. The kind of life that you and I are talking about today is talked about in a book by Robert Morris called The Blessed Life. And Robert Morris says this in The Blessed Life. He says, The days of the blessed person are filled with divine coincidences and heavenly meaning. Now, now what he means by that is, when you and I are aligned with God and in tune with God, then we find every day, where God divinely creates coincidences because we're aligned with him. And then he gives us meaning. He speaks into our life. And you hear from God because he whispers to you. And then he goes on to say this. He said, a blessed man may or, not, may, or may not be wealthy by the world's standards. But he enjoys a quality of life that most billionaires would envy. In other words, when you're living this life, a billionaire would look at you and say, man, I would love to live the kind of life you're living. Other people look at you and say, I would love to live the kind of life you're living. When you and I do this, we become so in tune with God, God speaks and you hear. And you say, Lord, speak, your servant's listening, and he speaks, and you get it. And so, number one, you and I are aligned with God. Number two, we're in tune with God. Number three, you are in the midst of the love and blessing of God. Now, I know that's long, but I don't want to leave either of that out. When you and I do this, the Bible promises that we are in the midst of the love and the blessing of God. It overflows your life. It overwhelms your life. It gushes from your life. You start experiencing that. Now, those three promises come straight out of God's word, the Bible, about what we're about to talk about. And so what are we talking about? You ready? We're talking about first fruits. First fruits is taught over 50 times in Scripture. First fruits, the idea of what first fruits mean, is taught over 50 times in Scripture. And you and I need to understand it to understand God and his heart and everything about what it means to be a believer. Now, what is the first fruits? The first fruits is this. Remember that the Bible was initially written to an agricultural society. So when the term came out of it, it's an agricultural term. Now, if you had an apple orchard, and you had watched your apples start coming out, what the first fruits are the first apples that are ripened to the place that they're perfect. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't harvest them too soon. You would harvest them at the right moment. But there's going to be a portion of them that are ready before the others. And so you and I would go pick those apples. And then what God says is, those are your best apples. You know why? Because you've waited till the exact right moment. They're going to be the best of all the apples. They're going to be the most precious. Why? Because as you harvest them, they're worth more. And you are ready? As you get ready to bring them out, you have to trust that the rest are going to be there insects could harm them weather could change spoilage could occur and so what you get first is your first your best and your most precious and you know what God says to do give it to me give it to me and so the first fruits is we take the best the most precious and we give it to God trusting that he will bless the rest and protect the rest now, if you're an agricultural farmer, that's a big deal. That means before you do anything else, you give to God. That's first fruit giving, that's first fruit living. And by the way, it's taught over 50 times in Scripture. There are four truths that you and I need to know about first fruits. Let me give you the first one. Number one, the first of everything is to be returned to the Lord. The first of everything is to be returned to the Lord. That's the first thing you and I need to grasp to understand this. Barry, last week, did a great job in expositing Scripture and letting us know that everything belongs to God. I think you saw that. The Bible teaches that everything's the Lord. So what's different about this? Here's what's different. Everything belongs to God, but the first fruits must be returned to God. By the way, to God, that's not an option. It's not a choice if you love him. I take the first fruits and return it to God. Which, by the way, in our setting means, as income comes into me, as God blesses me that I'm able to get anything, anything financial in my life, the first 10% of it must be returned to him. Now, where do we find that? Well, many places, but Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 talks about this. Honor the Lord from your wealth... And from the first of all your produce, did you catch that? The first of all your produce, that's the first fruits. Now what happens then? So that your barns may be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. And then he says this, my son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. God says, don't reject this. Don't say no to this. Don't fail to do this. We are to honor the Lord from our wealth. That's an offering to God. And from the first of all our produce, we give a first fruit offering to God every time we get a harvest in our life, every time we get income in here. And God says, if you do that, your barns will be filled with plenty. I'll protect the crops. I'll cause them to flourish beyond what you can imagine. And your vats will overflow with new wine. You'll just keep being blessed, God says. But don't forget, Barry said this last week, it doesn't start with God blessing us and us giving. It starts with us giving, and God blessing. Now here's why. Because it's an act of faith. It's got to be done by faith. Now I have taught on tithing before and every time I teach on tithing I get far more compliments than complaints. I, I think because this church is a committed church. And that's why. But let me tell you this. I do not think that I have ever taught you as clearly and, and completely as I should first fruits. And and this isn't just a ploy. I want to ask your forgiveness. Because it is possible for you or I to give 10% to God of our income and still be in sin. Now, why? Because if I give the last 10%. If I give it because I can afford it. If I don't give it to him first, if I don't put him first and do it just out of obedience to him, that's not first fruit giving. If I say, well, you know what, Um, I really ought to give 10% to God. Let's see if I can afford it. I'll give my house payment, my utilities. I'm going to go ahead and give my, you know, satellite bill and, and of course, my car payment and, and, and by the way, my gym membership, even though I never go. And, uh, and oh, hey, I've got 10% left over. You know what God says? Then keep it because you didn't put me first. First fruits must be returned to God first. That's the only way it counts. And again, we see that over 50 times in Scripture. And we need to understand something. For me to do that, and for you to do that, it means we have to truly see God as first, and we truly have to see that we trust God. In other words, an act of faith. I give to God the first 10%, trusting the 90% that God's going to bless it. And I don't say, I can I for I say, God, I'm just going to do it. Uh, In Proverbs 3, 5 to 8, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. You'll be aligned with him. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. And what's the next verse say? If you're going to trust in me with all your heart, you're going to do what I just told you to do. The next verse says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and the first of all your produce. God says you and I need to do that. I hope you have your Bibles, and I hope you turn to 2 Chronicles 31 with me. This is really important. You see, back when this event occurred, this is a real historical event with very real people. There was a king named Hezekiah. He had just ascended to the throne. It was a time in the land of Israel and the nation of Israel. And I want to emphasize the word nation. When the whole nation was impoverished And their economy was in turmoil and ruins. People were in bondage. Uh, There was immorality was rampant and nobody was worshiping God. I mean, God's word and God's ways were unknown and people were not giving. They were so off on their own ways and they were hurting economically and they were in debt and they were impoverished. And Hezekiah, this is really important again, led a national revival where the whole nation turned to God. And in a very short period of time, everything changed. Why? Because they turned to God. Now, he made a bold move that could have cost him his life, but he still made a strong stand for God. And when they did, the first thing they did is they had wiped out all idolatry. Any false religion was exterminated. All the idols were torn down. Everything was cast out. They cleansed their land. They called people back to God. Then he cleansed the temple, and they opened the temple. And then he called for the teaching priests to come back, and they they gave them a salary, so that's all they did was teach God's word. And then what did they do next? They celebrated Passover, and they celebrated God, and they dedicated themselves to him. And then we come to 2 Chronicles 31. Notice what happened in the midst of this national revival, and notice the results of it. It says in 2 Chronicles 31 verse 3, He is Hezekiah. He also appointed the king's portion for his goods, for the burnt offerings, namely for the morning and the evening burnt offerings, and the burnt offerings for the Sabbath and the new moons and the fixed festivals, as it is written in the law of the Lord. I want to make sure you understand this. A burnt offering is an offering that means we are totally dedicated to God. So whenever you read burnt offering in Scripture, it means total dedication, So what did he do first? He said, we did a time of total dedication to God. That's what that verse means. Now notice the next verse, verse four. And he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give portion due to the priests and the Levites that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord. They gathered together those who were called by God to study God's word and teach God's word to do nothing but that. And they gave them a salary to do that. That was the next thing they did. Verse five, as soon as the order spread, the sons of Israel provided in abundance the first fruits. The next thing that happened is they started doing first fruit giving. They they so trusted God. By the way, could they afford it? Here's the answer. No. But they did it out of love and trust for God. They did it because he now was first in their life. They eliminated idolatry. They dedicated themselves to the Lord. They got into God's word. And now they're acting on God's word. And it says this in verse 5. As soon as the order spread, the sons of Israel provided in abundance the first fruits of the grain, new wine, oil, honey, and all the produce of the field. And they brought it in abundantly, the tithe of all. Tithe means the first 10%. Verse six, the sons of Israel and Judah who lived in the cities of Judah also brought in the tithe of oxen and sheep and the tithe of sacred gifts which were consecrated to the Lord their God and placed them in heaps. Now, why is that? And and you need to understand that to understand the next verses. So they're bringing in all these things and they're supposed to take it and put it in the storehouse, but so much is coming in, they can't get it in quickly. So a heap starts building of all the tithes. Now, they're gonna take care of it. It's not gonna be ruined. But before they can bring in all of the different things that that are being brought they're saying okay just put it in heaps so we can start putting it into the storehouse that's what's going on and they keep now notice what happens in verse seven in the third month they began to make the heaps and finished them by the seventh month for four months this is going on and when hezekiah and the rulers came and saw the heaps they blessed the lord and his people israel then hezekiah questioned the priests and the levites concerning the heaps now why is he questioning them He's going, why haven't you guys put these away? Why aren't they stored correctly? Why does this keep building up on you? And here's the answer. Verse 10, Azariah, the chief priest of the house of Zadok said to him, since the contributions began to be brought into the house of the Lord, we have had enough to eat with plenty left over. Here's why. For the Lord has blessed his people and this great quantity is left over. Now, now, do you catch what's happened? This is the people who could not afford to do this. This is an impoverished community. But they started giving to God. And when they went back, there was more. So they gave to God. And when they went back, there was more. And they gave to God. And all of a sudden, they go, we just can't keep up. God just keeps blessing. We gave the first fruits. And then God just keeps blessing us on the other side. And we can't even. And they just kept going and going and going. And the whole nation turned to God. Now, this is important. Why I kept saying important three or four times? Because our nation is not turning to God. Every year since 1990, church attendance has gone down. In 1990, one out of three people in the United States said they were born again and they were committed to living that life. And we are watching our country go down the tubes. We are watching the church make no difference. Would you agree with me that the church today is not making any difference in our national policies? That we're not making any difference in the morality of our country? That we're ignored? Now, there's a reason for that because the church today is not being faithful. And and I mean that. The church in the United States is what we're talking about and we need a national revival. And, And let me tell you this right now. In 1998, in 1998, a study was done and found that Christians who attend church in the United States earned five, uh, and let me make sure and grab this number correctly, they, in, they earned $5.2 trillion. Christians in the United States in 1998 earned $5.2 trillion. And, and in that year, we gave to the Lord $92 billion. And that might seem like a, a lot of money. And oh, wow, a lot of money there. 92 billion was given to God, but we earned 5.2 trillion. So in reality, what did we give God? 1.7%. 1.7% was all that was given to God out of all the blessings God poured into our life. Now, what should we have given to God? Here's what I want you to have. And by the way, this is proportionate. What I'm about to show you is a proportional drawing. We should have given... 520 billion to God. Which would have been the 10%. Do you see the disconnect here? This is the difference between obedience and disobedience. Between faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And if you ask the question, does it matter? The answer is yes. We're talking about billions of dollars that could have been used to save people in Jesus Christ. And because of that not being done, the church has become anemic and ineffective because we really don't put our money where our mouth is and where our heart should be. And so now more and more people are going to hell, and less and less people are giving their lives to Jesus Christ. Because, by the way, we're not lifting Jesus up. Committed people draw people to Jesus. Uncommitted people don't. We also, by the way, think about the difference we could have made in the area of human trafficking. Human trafficking is sore, and the church is anemic and not able to respond to set people free and to stop this. What about the difference in the idea of the reaching the next generation? The number one group of people we're not reaching today is the next generation. By the way, praise God for our Generate ministry that's doing that here. But it's not being reached. Do you know that the average person who's committed to Islam gives more money to their cause than ours? And that's why Islam is taking the world today. We're losing a battle of resources because they're more committed than we are. And you might say, does it come down to money? Yes, it does, because money is where our heart is. And this big disconnect here has left our nation. We are watching the, a time when, like no other, when darkness is overwhelming this country, sin is becoming the lifestyle of this country. And I want to tell you, Hezekiah led a revival, and he saved a whole nation. If the Christians today in the United States would rise up, we could take this country back. We really could. And you might say, is that really true? Well, let me tell you what God's word says. We were in 2 Chronicles 31, but I want to have you take this uh, this passage down on your notes. 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14 says, If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and seek my face and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I would heal their land. God's promise is true. Do you believe God's promise is true? If we would humble ourselves and do what God calls in every area of our life, especially in this one, guess what God says? I'll heal this land. God has not given up on the United States. God wants this country won back. And if we act like it can't be, we haven't understood the power of God. The other thing it says in 2 Chronicles as you start looking at it, in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, it says this, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, looking for the person whose heart is loyal to him, That he might support him. Now, isn't it interesting that this promise is here to heal the land? This promise is here that God will support even one person whose heart's loyal. And in 2 Chronicles 30 and 31, a man named Hezekiah rises up whose heart is loyal and the land is healed. We could heal this land. Crossroads, by the way, we should join with church after church after church in making a difference. But it means that we have to be faithful. And we have to understand that the first fruits must be returned to God if we're going to see this occur. And that's something you and I can't let go of. That's the first truth. The second truth is this. First fruits embraces the value of Christ. Now this is where we're getting very, very deep. First fruits embraces the value of Christ. I I want you to think about that, and when I'm done, I hope you go, I get it, I get it, I get it. And and we need to understand that. Now, why is this difficult? Well, this is what we call typology. Typology. Now, typology is something that comes straight out of the Bible. It's something God wants you and I to understand. And when I get done today, I hope that you're going to understand it. By the way, First Fruits is a typology. There are other typologies in the Bible. Uh, Thayer's Bible Dictionary says typology is defined as this. It's defined as the sum and summation of all our religious belief. you catch what I'm saying? Typology is the sum and summation of everything we believe and live. And so when you understand a type in the Bible, you begin to understand Genesis through Revelation like you never have before. You'll understand God like you never have before. So let's talk about what typology is. When you have, do you guys remember this thing called a typewriter? Anybody remember that? There's some of you who've never seen one. But in a typewriter, if you don't know, what happens is you would hit a button and it would type something on a page. Type, typology. Does that make sense? By the way, I am not at all trying to think you're not intelligent. I know how intelligent this group is. So I, I just want to make sure we, we get to the depth of it. So I, I hope that's what I'm doing with you. And, and again, this is, this is really important. This is the meat. We're getting into meat. So if you typed on a page the letter T, and all of a sudden you had this T pop up, here's the thing I want you to grab hold of. That is not actually a T. It's a type or a symbol of a T. That you would now in your mind understand what that T is. And so a type is a symbol. And you might say, then why don't they call it a symbol? That's easier. Because it's more. It's the sum and summation of all we believe. It's way more. It should become real. It should become vital. It should become emotional. It should become something you embrace to the depth of your soul when you understand it. So it's not just a symbol, but that symbol or that type allows us to embrace something, the value of Christ. So now, by the way, I said that this is a T, but let's don't call this a T anymore. What should we call it? Okay, a cross. Now, all right, so this is now a cross, and it's a type of a cross, but I think everybody agrees it's only a symbol of the cross, of a real cross that Jesus hung on at one time. Does that make sense? So it's a type at that point. Now, in the Bible, there are different types. Adam is a type. So uh, uh, in Romans 5, verse 14, it says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned, in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come, which was Jesus. Did you hear it right out of the Bible? It says he's a type. Well, what is that saying? Here's where I'm going. Adam committed one sin, and that one sin brought all of us under sin. Everybody here is under the sin of Adam. Everybody here has a sin nature. My, my grandson, Liam, I love my grandson to death. But you know what? The other day he lied. He's not had one lesson on how to lie. We don't bring him in the room and said, Liam, can we teach you to lie? He just lied. Why? Because of the sin nature that he gets from his grandmother. And uh, so, um, yeah, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But, but the idea is Adam, when Adam did one sin... He was a type of Jesus uh, and pointing to something else, and that one sin overwhelmed all mankind. In the same way, Jesus committed one sacrifice. He died on the cross one time so that we would all have the opportunity to be brought into a relationship with God in forgiveness. Do you see, one action brought all under sin... One, it pointed to the day that Jesus would come and commit one sacrifice to invite everybody into healing. Now, here's where we're going even deeper. This gets deeper. When Adam sinned one time and we all got caught up in their sin, it pervaded every area of our life. When you understand the type that Jesus' death, when you and I embrace it, that also should cover every area of our life. The joy of God, the love of God, the peace of God, the healing of God should go to everything you do in that one moment. That one action. And that's called typology. I'll give you another illustration of a type. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Now, Abraham, and we won't go into everything in this because it's really deep and exciting, but let's just stick to one point of it. Abraham had a son named Isaac, and in Genesis 22 verse 1, God said this. He said, Abraham, take your son, your precious son, your only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him to me. Now, before those words were spoken, Genesis 22, 1 says this, and God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. And he said, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, your precious son, and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham said, Lord, I'll do it. He loved Isaac more than anyone or anything. It was the number one love of his life. And so he took Isaac, who was maybe 20, 25, maybe even 30 years old, and said, come on, we're going to sacrifice to the Lord. They journeyed to a place that God would show him, where most likely, by the way, thousands of years later, the cross would be. And in that very spot, Isaac said, Father, what are we going to sacrifice? You didn't bring anything. And, and he laid out the wood. And by the way, he made Isaac carry the wood. Catch this. He had to carry the, only, the very wood he would die on, just like Jesus had to carry the very wood he would die on. And and they built the altar, and he allowed his father to tie him, and he laid down. And Abraham, even though it was about to kill him, because this is his son, his most precious son, he takes that knife, and he's about to drive it into his son. And God, at the last second, says, no, no, don't do it. And all of a sudden, there's a sound, and he looks over, and there's a, a goat caught in the thicket, and there's a substitute who would die in place for his son. Now, this is a type. This is a type of what? That now, God said, I would never truly ask you to do that. I just want you to love me that way because I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to give Jesus for you. And by the way, I put it in your notes. Jesus is called the first fruit. Now, why is this first fruit? 1 Corinthians 15 says, Jesus is the first fruit. God gave to us his first fruit. What was most precious? What was the best? What was the most pure, what God loved the most, he put on the cross. And Isaac was a type of the cross. Isaac was a type of God's love. And when we begin to understand that, we begin to embrace in the value of Christ and the love of Christ like we never have before. And in Hebrews 11, 17 to 19, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, that's a key word, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who had received the promise, was uh, the promises offering up his only begotten son. And it is, was he to whom he called, and Isaac your descendants shall be called. Verse 19, he considered that God is able to raise even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. See, the Bible teaches that's typology. The Bible also teaches first fruits are a typology of Jesus, who was called in 1 Corinthians 15, the first fruit. Now, now, why is that? Now, this is something I, I want to make sure and say correctly. Many people aren't aware of this, but the Bible actually refers to children as the fruit of the womb. Did did everybody know that? Not fruit of the loom. We're not talking boxers and briefs. (laughs) The fruit of the womb, W-O-M-B. Children are the fruit of the womb. And you know what God says? The first fruit belongs to me, so every firstborn child is mine. By the way, what would Jesus be? The first and only begotten. He belongs to God, and God gave that to us. The firstborn belongs to him. And so in first fruit giving, we understand the first of everything is to be returned to God. But the first child is a type of Jesus. And we understand that. We embrace that. Where do we get that from? Lots of places. But in Numbers chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, it says this. Now behold, I have taken from the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn. In other words, the Levites will be a substitute for the firstborn. I'll explain that in a moment. The first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall be mine. Why? Verse 13. For all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel. From man to beast, they shall be mine. I am the Lord. Now, what is he saying? He says, when I have a firstborn son, and Hannah had a firstborn son named Samuel, what was she to do? She was to give him to God, trusting God later would give her more children. God says, though, because I love you, I'm going to do something. Your firstborn children you can keep, but a Levite must take their place. And the Levite now belongs to me, but you need to see that Levite as your personal priest who took your place of your firstborn child, and you need to honor him. And by the way, that's what they would do. They would honor that Levite by name. Now, why did you do that? We do that because Jesus took my place on the cross, and I want to honor him. Does it, am I making sense? Anybody else? Am I, Or have I lost you? Anybody get it? Anybody? Okay, some of you get it. Okay, good. I'm trying. and and, and If if you're not getting it, it's me, not you. Um, But I'm trying to get it to you. But see, when you do that, you understand typology. So what it is, now this is bigger than just a symbol. When I give the first fruit to God, now this is big. When I give the first fruit, my tithe to God, what I'm saying is Jesus is the most precious. Jesus is First. Jesus matters most, and God, because you gave the best to me, I want to give the best to you. By the way, if I don't give to God, whether you know it or not, you're saying Jesus doesn't matter. You're saying Jesus isn't precious, and he has no value. Cy Rogers said this really well. Love and value are synonymous. If I value you, I show you love. If I say I love you, but don't show you value, I don't show you love. Love and value are synonymous, and that's why God says give the first fruit. Now, some of you might say, why is the church always talking about money? Well, the Bible teaches that Jesus does, and you'll see that more uh, in a minute. But the idea is this, because it matters to you. The minute I talk about this, some of you go, no, that's mine. I don't want to do it. See, it matters to you. And because it matters to you, it matters to God. And God wants to see if Jesus matters to you. And it becomes a type. More than a symbol, it becomes a matter of the heart whether we're going to do that or not. And we need to understand that. So in doing this, we embrace the value of Christ. You say how much Jesus is valued to you. The third third thing is this. First fruits show our love of God. First fruits show our love of God. We're to love God most and we're to love Him with everything we have. In Matthew 22, it says, The greatest commandment is you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and the foremost of all commandments. Jesus went to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, 4, and 5, and he said, you know what, you guys, man, you could not know God's word better. You could not be serving me better. You could not be standing up for me better, but none of it matters because you don't have a first love for me. You're not loving me first. Why? It goes back to the first fruit and the first love and everything that's in it. God values that. And in Matthew 6, verse 21, Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart is also. Because it matters to you, It matters to God, and he wants to see how much it matters to you and how much Jesus matters to you. And so we show our love of God in this. Jesus, by the way, talked about money a lot. 15% of everything that Jesus said had to do with money because it matters to you and me. Uh, Jesus told 38 parables. 16 of them dealt with money. Why? Because that defines us more than we like to admit. And and we need to understand that. Now, I, I think I have an illustration of it that's um, very accurate and true, and I'm about to confess something to you. My wife, Pam, uh, and I, I took her to the Mark Driscoll marriage weekend that we had here, and many of you remember Mark came, and he unveiled his brand new book to us, uh, Real Marriage, which is a great book. And so we got to meet Mark and Grace Driscoll, and we went out to dinner, and we, we have a friendship with them now, and we're having a blast, and we get back, and this place is all buzzing around, and we walk outside, and there's all the book tables, and Pam says, I really want Mark's book, and I go, oh, I got one for you. And she goes, you did? And I said, yeah, I got one for you. She was so excited. And so what happened, we got home, and I walked in, and I handed her this book right here. And she looked at it, and she said, what's this? And I said, well, this is the Real Marriage book from Mark Driscoll. I got it for you. And she said, "Um, Chuck, it says advanced reader's copy, not for reseller distribution. And I said, yeah, I got it for free. You know, I I always get the, the, by the way, that's one of the perks for me. Publishers send me the books before they come out. And so I got this one like three months ago before it came out. This is really special. See, I'm really an important person. So I got this for free. (laughs) She said, advanced reader, you got this for nothing. I thought you said you got it for me. Well, I did. She goes, Chuck, it's used. Oh yeah, I let seven other people read it. (laughs) All the women already know. Some of the men already. You're not getting it. You need to get this, guys. This is big. I didn't get it. I'm like, Pam, I got this book for you. She goes, no, you didn't. Advanced reader's copy. I said, no, this is a big deal. This shows how important I am. I'm giving it to you. She said, no, it's a big deal. You didn't pay a penny for it, and other people have used it. I said, but I saved 12 bucks. And you know what she got ready to say? She, by the way, at this point, I'm, I want to be really honest, she's crying. And she looks at me and said, so I wasn't worth $12. She thought I would go pay the 12 bucks and actually have Mark sign it and give her her own copy nobody else had touched. Do you know what this book symbolizes in our marriage right now? It's a type. And she won't let me throw it away. Now, what did I need to do? Does everybody here already know? I had to apologize and quit pretending I was right and quit letting my pride get in the way. I'm an important person and you should really, if the publisher thinks I'm this good, you should, know. <laughs> and then what did I need to do next? I had to go buy her the book and give it to her. And whenever it comes to first fruits, it is a matter of the heart. You might say, oh, does it matter? It matters to God. 50 times he tells us it does. 50 times it speaks of our love for him. It's the sum and summation of our belief about Jesus. That's what typology says. And we need to understand that. Uh, Number four, and this is big. Number four, first fruits is the ultimate test of the heart. First fruits is the ultimate test of the heart. Now, Now, I think many of you already know this, but there are certain numbers in the Bible that have meaning to them. Uh, uh, the number seven is the number of completeness, and it's the, it's the idea of perfection of God. Uh, uh, by the way, the number six is what? It's the sign of Satan. And whenever you have a 666, it's the unholy trinity. Uh, Forty is usually a time of God's waiting and testing and faithfulness. And the number 10 is a very interesting word. The number 10 is the number of testing, and if you pass the test, you're perfect. The number 10, the idea of 10... Is the idea of testing, and I, I want you to grab that. That's again a kind of a, a one of the more in depth things in Scripture. And when the more you understand that, it's the idea of a test. And the question is, do we pass the test? And, and where do we get that from? Well, let me give you an example. There were ten plagues in Egypt to test Pharaoh's heart. There were ten commandments given that test our obedience. And when we when we do all of them, guess what? We're perfect. Uh, God tested Israel 10 times while they were wandering in the wilderness. They failed 10 times. Jacob was tested 10 times before he was freed to live his life and and be able to experience what God wanted him to experience. Uh, Daniel was tested for 10 days. In Matthew 25, there were 10 virgins who were tested to see if they would be prepared for the coming of the Lord. Uh, In Revelation 2.10, the church was to be tested, it says, for 10 days. And of course, Jesus had 10 disciples, which... It's not true. That's a test. Um, (laughs) Where are we going? The word tithe means one-tenth. And guess what that says? It's a test. It's a test. And if you were willing to say, well, Chuck, you just put that in there. Well, actually, no, God did. God says, actually, God defines the tithe as a test. It's a test of our faithfulness and a test of our love for him. It's a test of our trust for him. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 7, what happened is the people, again, were back in impoverishment. They were back in pain. They were hurting. They couldn't afford anything. And they come and say, God, where are you? And the Lord tells Malachi to say these words to them. Return to me, and I'll return to you. You and I aren't close. We're not connected. We're not aligned. We're not in tune. You're not in my love and blessing. But if you return to me, I'll give all that to you, he says. Return to me, and I'll return to you. Listen to the words in Malachi 3, 7. From the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, you say, how shall we return? And guess what God says? Will a man rob God, yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, and you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And then the next verse, he says, you bring all the tithes to the storehouse, and then you watch what I'll do. Matter of fact, you know what God says next? Bring all the tithes to the storehouse, and you guess what the next word's going to be? And test me now in this. God says that the first fruit offering is a test of God towards us and a test of us towards God. God actually says, test me. See if I won't open the windows of heaven. Test me and see if I'm not faithful. Test me. God said it's the biggest test you could imagine. It's the ultimate test of the heart. See, back to Pam and I on this. When uh, I did this to Pam, in that moment, there was a curse between us. I mean, I went from having a marriage that was amazing to one in that moment that was cursed. And and I don't take that lightly. I've got her sitting on the couch crying. And there was a gulf between us. It was a Grand Canyon moment. Do you ever have that with your wife or husband? Where you feel like you could sit on the same couch and you guys might be miles apart because you're just not connected? You're not aligned. You're not in tune? Pam and I were under a curse until I would get right and let go of my pride. Um until I sought to understand her and what valued her, what showed value to her. I wasn't aligned with her. I wasn't in tune with her. And here's why. I didn't value her. Now, God says, when you don't give the first fruit to me, there's a void between us. Now, I want to say this, and I really want to say this clearly. I actually had someone come and say, well, I'm not tithing, and God and I are fine. Well, I want to be as clear as I can. Then you do not know what it's like to be fine with God. You might say, oh, I can't tell you that. You're right. Here's the answer. I can't. God's word does. The Bible tells you over and over. And you might go, well, I don't think. Well, I guess then you think you know God better than the Bible. If you aren't putting God first in this area, you have no idea what it's like to be in tune with him and aligned with him and in intimate with him and in love with him. You have no idea. You really don't. But you could God says, return to me, return to me and start doing it. How do you return? Show me you love me. Come and make it real. I want it to be real between us. And when you bring all the tithe in the storehouse, what's going to happen? And I've got it in your notes there. Get ready. Number one, God says you are going to be an intimate fellowship with him. Just jot that down on that line. Intimate fellowship with him. That's found in Malachi 7, uh, 3, 7 to 9. That God says, that's what's going to happen. We're going to be close like we've never been before. This is God's promise. That you'll be in intimate fellowship with him. Number two, Malachi 3.10. God will open the windows of heaven to bless you. So the word you fill in there is windows. And the next one's blessed. He will open up the windows and pour blessing out on your life. God promises that when you do this. That's the second thing. The third, God will rebuke the curse of the devourer. God will rebuke the curse of the devour. In Hezekiah's time, they turned to God, were faithful to God, in almost a um, four-month period of time. Their whole economy turned around. The whole nation was right with God. It happened to them. By the way, in Malachi's time, they did it. All of the people turned to God, and immediately they started going, God, you your blessing, we can't believe it. If you want to read more about it, Hosea talks about it. And it says it just started happening. So God rebukes the curse of the devourer. And the fourth thing, God says he'll write your name in the book of remembrance. Now, I don't know if you get excited about that, but I do. That God has a book, and he writes in that book the name of everybody who's faithful to him. It's his book of remembrance. God has a scrapbook with your name in it, my name in it, when we're faithful. And he says, look at this. Look at what they've done. He has a a area devoted just to you. God says, I will do that. And when that happens, you will be aligned with God, you'll be in tune with God, and you'll be in the love of God. First fruits is deep. First fruits is big. And it's more than a symbol. It's embracing the value of Christ. So here's the question. It really is the question. Do we really truly love him with all our heart, soul, and mind? Do I? See, I could come out here and say, I do. God knows and I know. Do I really, really mean it? Am I someone who, I literally, there's nothing I would hold back. I would never hold back on him. And you know what God tells me, Chuck, if you would live that way, I am going to bless you beyond you can imagine. I'm going to do things in your life more than you could know. I'm going to whisper to you great and mighty things that are beyond your comprehension. I'm going to cause you to live a life that's so incredible that at 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10, that I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor is it ever entered the heart of man all the things I have prepared for those who love me. God has that for you, and he wants it for you. Now, where does it all begin? It all begins with me being honest with myself and honest with God. And in 2 Chronicles 31, what happened here is the people said, you know what, we're going to get rid of everything in our life that's keeping us from God. In 2 Chronicles 31, they said, all right, we're going to totally dedicate ourselves to God. And then we're going to just start living out what it means to be a Christian. So where does it begin? If you're here today and you're brand new to all this, I want to tell you that God has an amazing plan for your life, an amazing promises for your life. And it's not just something you read in a book called the Bible. It's something you experience as the Bible becomes alive and God begins to enact it in your life. It's about having a very real relationship with Him. And today I want you to have that. God wants you to have it. Remember all of this is the summation of a belief that Jesus was given. God's most precious was given on the cross for you. And whether you understand everything it means, I can tell you one thing you can't understand. This cross stands for a sign that God loves you And cares about you and wants you to come to him. And he wants to erase all the sin in your life. And all the failure. And he wants to take away the pain and the hurt. And make you a brand new creation. Because Jesus now is ready to stand in your place. And today, if you would say, God, I want that. I want that life. I want to know you. I want to live with you. I want to be aligned with you. And in tune with you. And in your love and blessing. All you have to do is begin it by saying, yes, I'll do it. And God will take you and draw you close. And how do you do that? Right now, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to pray a prayer with me right where you're sitting and say, God, I want this. In Romans, it says, call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Just call on him. And so what we're going to do in a moment, I'm going to have a time of prayer and then I'm going to stop. And anybody here who's ready to say yes to God, I'm going to ask you to whisper that prayer. There are some of you need to do it for the first time. There are some here today that need to do it to recommit yourself. At one time, you did have a love for God. Or maybe you kind of started and stopped, and God wants to take you all the way. And so what you would say today is, God, I'm committed. I'm completely committed. So I'm going to ask you to pray that prayer. There might be some of you who are sitting here today, you're so hurt. Or so lonely. Or so lost. You're not sure what to do. Well, I'll tell you what, then reach out and let him take your hand. If you reach out to him, he'll take you today. Just pray that prayer with me. And I think there is, I think there are some couples here today that you right now are not aligned with each other. Do you know the best way to come together is come together around Jesus Christ. And I know you can't make the other person do it, but I'm gonna pray today that there's some of you who you're going to go, we're going to do this together. And you just start praying, and maybe someone will reach out and take a risk and take a hand, and you'll get squeezed back, and you'll pray that prayer together. And I know that's a risky thing to ask in a moment like this, but I'm hoping for it. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would really, truly put at your, anoint this place. God, that you would just be amongst us, that you would stir in here. Lord, I pray that this church, this Crossroads family is going to be your church that we would not hold back in any way, that we would be completely committed, that there would be no lukewarmness. So God, I pray for that right now for for all of us. And I I prayed, Lord, that the commitment level would rise and we would help each other. And when one falls, we would surround the person and lift them back up, that we'd be your family. Father, I want to pray right now for any man, woman, guy, or girl who needs to give their life to you. Lord, I pray you would stir right now. Oh, Lord, I pray they could sense you that it's real, that you're here. And while we may not be able to see you with our eyes, we can sense your presence and know it's real. And right now, Lord, I pray for anyone who needs to give their life to you, that they would would be ready to do it. I pray that they they can know this is their time. Lord, I pray for the person who needs to come back. I've been sensing, Lord, this is a season of return, and we need to see a lot of people returning to you. And I pray for a person here who's sitting here today, and they have been in church in a long time. And they want to be. They, it was hard to come, but they want to be back. And I pray today they're going to recommit. I pray for someone who's been wanting to experience you, and they, they haven't been, even though they gave their life to you. I pray today they're going to recommit, and they're going to experience you. And Lord, it's just on my heart today to, to pray for couples. I think there's probably a couple here who's dating and, and you really do want them together, but they have gotten caught up in some things they shouldn't. And today they need to put their relationship back in your hands. God, I pray for a husband and wife who's sitting here today and the wife has wanted so much to feel loved and precious. And the husband deep down wants to and he doesn't know how. I pray today, God, you're going to touch him, And I pray they're going to pray this prayer together. I know it's a risk. One of them's going to have to take the risk. I pray it's going to happen. I'm going to lead that prayer right now. I'm going to ask if you're a Christian, would you start praying for people who need to pray it? And right now, if you're ready to say yes to God, I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer. Really whisper this prayer with me. Say these words. Say, Lord Jesus, I know you love me. And I know you died on the cross to forgive me and to cleanse me from all my sin to heal me from my hurt and my pain to free me from my fear and from worry and from my past and from selfishness and you did this because you want me to be yours and so I say yes yes I want you yes I want the life you have for me Yes, I want to be yours completely. So I open my heart to you. Please fill me with your love and fill me with your spirit and help me be who you have created me to be and help me to live. Think of those words. Help me to live the life you have for me to live. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And praise God if you prayed that prayer. Praise God if you prayed that prayer.